Let's just pray, shall we, as we come to look at these words from Paul. Our great God and Father, as we come to reflect upon your words, please, by your Holy Spirit, show us Christ. Show us how to live well for Christ, to live well in Christ. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Well, obviously, I've been off for a long time uh, after my operation, so I thought as I just came back, it'd just be good that we just check over some fundamental truths together uh, for a few moments. Would that be okay, just to see we're still all on the same page here? Uh, We believe and in and worship the true and living God. Happy with that? Yep, still doing that. That's really good to hear. He is the one who created the world. He is the one who rules this world. He is awesome in power and majesty and wisdom. He is a holy God. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a God who has in mercy given us salvation in Jesus Christ. And the true and living God... He is not just a force. He is a living, personal God, a speaking God, the all-wise God. Happy with me so far? Still on the same page. This is such good news. And God willed, it was his desire, he willed his creation into being. God willed, he decided, he wanted to save a people to himself. This great, true and living God who we worship and adore is a God who makes plans. And so we ask the question, what is God's will for us? What does the true and living God want of us. What is his will for us? It's a really good question. What does this true God want from those who are in Christ Jesus? What sort of things does he look for in us that will please him, that are according to his will? Now, of course, there's a long answer to that question. We could Uh, explore that question and look for answers in, in many aspects. But we're going to see in the verses that we're going to focus in on tonight three things that this true and living God wills for us. What we can say with absolute certainty is the will of God for Spicer Street Church. And every member of Spicer Street Church. Last week, Dave Couch gave us a tremendous sermon on the second half of chapter 5. Isn't it just fantastic, by the way, for those who have known Dave of old, just to see the way he's come on and is such an excellent speaker and preacher these days. Dave covered these verses really well. Great headings and helped us to see the sweep. But I just want to focus on verses 16, 17, and 18. You see, what does God will 
for us in Christ Jesus. For those that know Christ and know his power, what does he want from us? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And now referring to these three things, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Dave pointed out this will, these commands. There's the all, always rejoicing, praying continually and giving thanks in all circumstances. This is the will for all of God's people. It's the will for Thessalonians. This is God's will for all who are in Christ. We can put it like this. These are the standing orders for the Christian, for the Christian church. Not the standing orders of a bank. It is the standing orders of a a military standing orders. When you have a military standing order, you have an order, a general order of unlimited duration published by a military commander, and is binding on all of those under his command. And these commands are a standing order from our king. Commands of unlimited duration, published by God, binding on all who are under his command. All who are in Christ Jesus. This is his will for us. These are his commands. Are you ready to listen, to obey, to reflect, to repent if we haven't been doing these things or ignoring these things? And to ask for strength to do these things which are the will of God for you if you are in Christ Jesus Well, as we reflect on these three commands, these three imperatives, we need to remember that these words were not written to a people who had had it easy. They were not written to people who were coasting through life. These were written to people who had suffered huge difficulties. And it's in all likelihood that those difficulties were still going on. They had been persecuted They had been insulted. They had been excluded. They had been hurt. They may well have been traumatized by their experiences. We know that they had lost loved ones. Some of them will still have been grieving. They will have experienced all the problems that are common to humanity. Disease, death, bereavement, anxiety, redundancy, poverty. They'd experienced persecution. And yet Paul can say to this young church, God's will for you is that you rejoice always, that you pray continually, and that you give thanks in all circumstances. Let's think about those three things. Rejoice always. I hope we all know to some degree what joy is. It's that good feeling, isn't it? It's that good feeling about an event or a person. A wedding day is to be a joyful occasion as the, um, the groom and the bride are joyful at each, in each other and the prospect of their life together. 
We can maybe experience joy. When you get that job in that moment, you think, oh, this is just fantastic. I got that job. Sport can occasionally give joy. If you watched any of the rugby yesterday, the only decent game was in the evening, Wigan beat the Penrith Panthers, in case you didn't know, in the World Challenge Cup. And it's a fantastic game. In rugby league, they know how to pass and they know how to catch and things like that, not the other game. And Wigan won it. And Wigan, they're now the kind of best club in the world. They beat the Australian champions. But it's fascinating to watch the joy as they win in that event. See, in life, there are little joys, there are big joys. But the Thessalonians, you see, had experienced capital J, joy. Back in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, we read about that joy. You became imitators of us. This is when they received the gospel and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering... They welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, costly suffering. How did they welcome that message? With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. As they came to believe and the Spirit was given to them, their reaction to this news of receiving Christ was joy. This was bigger than getting the job, than getting married, than any sports occasion, than any wealth. The joy that came from the Holy Spirit was that understanding that they were receiving the forgiveness of sins, that that guilt which had been with them had been carried away. They knew themselves to be loved by God's, deeply loved by God's. They now had a new purpose in life, called to serve the Lord Jesus. They had now a guaranteed glorious future when he returns. And they were joyful in what they were receiving in Christ. Just want to pause and just say, if you've not received that salvation, would you like to do so? It is the greatest thing to have Christ. Everyone needs to come to Christ to receive that life. If you have not yet done so, will you turn from your sin? Will you acknowledge that you've been ignoring Jesus and come to him and say, Jesus, please forgive me and give me your life. And as you receive that forgiveness, you have reason for joy there. So the Thessalonians experienced joy at the beginning. And what are they to do now? They are to go on being joyful in what they have received in Christ. It wasn't just to be a joy that they experienced at the beginning. It was a joy that they were to have in their hearts going forwards. Now, I think we struggle with that. Maybe just number of reasons. Maybe we just, well, yeah, we become a Christian. That's great. And I'm joyful. I'm happy. My sins have been forgiven. But slowly that just becomes kind of like dim. You know, it's like an old victory, that job that I got 20 years ago. I don't have any joy as I remember getting this. But now my joy, well, that's in family. That's in my hobbies. That's in my house. That's in my career. That's where I get my joys. And we forget 
the great salvation that we have in Christ. It ceases to be a source of joy to us. Or maybe we start with joy and then the problems come into our lives. That illness, that loss, that wound to the heart, that division in the church. And kind of joy is driven out of our hearts because we're overwhelmed by those difficulties which now just seem so big in our lives. It's right to lament. It really is sadness. Is okay. That's expected in scriptures. But joy can be driven out if we're not careful. And the Thessalonians, you see, are being encouraged to be joyful even though things are difficult. Paul knows that the human soul can be at the same time sorrowful yet rejoicing. And is encouraging us to be joyful. You see, the joy that we had at the beginning is the same reason for the joy now. We have Christ. And he will never be taken away from us. And he will never cast us out. He loves us. Has set his love upon us. Cares for us. He is working through the difficulties to refine and grow us. And he looks forward to welcoming us into that eternal joy with him. If we are in Christ, we have everything. And that is to be a cause of joy, even in our profoundest difficulties. What will that rejoicing look like? How can we begin to build up our rejoicing muscles, if I can put it like that? Or when we sing. Justin's so right, it's such an important part of the Christian life, by the way, we're to do joy, we're to do all of these things corporately and individually. We do joy together. It doesn't mean we have to look like whatever. You have to put your kind of what you think your joyful face is on. But when we come together, we often sing, I don't know if you notice, just the big gospel songs of the great salvation that we have in Christ. Those are invitations just to be joyful in that salvation. Never to lose our wonder at the gospel. That Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin, loves us and has died for us. That is just amazing. How can you ever get over that? We just can't, surely. It is a staggering thing. That he has done that and the benefits of that flow into our lives and will take us into eternity and into joy. We begin to rejoice by just turning to God and saying, yes, that is just wonderful what you've done. I'm, I'm glad in that. Doing it in our singing together. Doing it in our hearts of just taking that little bit of time to say, I just want to rejoice, God. I just want to be happy in what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to those of us who lead services, who preach at services, who lead home groups. Part of what we're doing in all of this is reminding each other, reminding the people of why we have reason to be joyful. Because of what we have in Christ. So rejoice always. The second standing command, 
is pray without ceasing. We are to pray continually. Why is it that we need to pray continually? Why do we need to go on in prayer? Why? Because we need to pray. I think there is a danger. You know, we think we've been saved. We think God has granted me salvation. Wonderful. He's given me the Holy Spirit. And now what I need to do is just to try hard. Try hard in my Christian life. I need to try to speak for Christ. I need to work hard so that I have enough. I need to work at the health stuff so that I stay healthy. The kind of culture that we live in says, control what you can control. Work hard, stay fit, don't do anything stupid. Stay smart, work hard, and things will work out. Or you give them the best chance of working out. You need to work. You need to do it. I think that's what our culture tells us. And if you think like that, you won't be praying very much. Because in the end, you think it's about you. So if you don't pray, it's probably because you think, yeah, it's about you. You need to live off your wits and make whatever. You'll get through by trying hard, keeping the routines, whatever. I wonder whether this thinking more than anything has left the church weak and ineffective in the West. We, in fact, need his help daily. We need it week on week. We need it year on year. In verse 25 of chapter 5, Paul pray, uh, says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Why did Paul ask for prayer? He was one of the most able men that ever lived. He was a giant of an intellect. He clearly had enormous personal resources and strength and drive. But he says, pray for us. Why? Because he knows to fulfill his job, he needs God's help on a day-by-day basis. The work of the Spirit equipping and enabling him. This letter, when he says pray continually, he has been modeling that prayer all the way through this letter. Showing the way that he is praying for them. An example would be uh, chapter 4, verse 12. Um, No, it's not going to be 4, verse 12. It's going to be um, 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. He commands them to love, but he prays that God would make their love overflow. He's looking to the Lord to work by his Spirit to make them into an ever more deeply loving people. At the end of chapter 5, in those famous verses, he prays that God would sanctify them there in verse 23. He prays that God would keep them. 
He knows that unless God works, they won't be sanctified. Unless God works, they won't be kept. And he prays. And he wants them to pray. You see, Satan is active unceasingly. Our flesh is weak unceasingly. We need to pray continually. I think there are a couple of illustrations which can um, help us here. The first one, uh, two illustrations, I hope you'll find them useful. Um, One comes from the beginning of of Tim Keller's book on prayer, which I think is just a great read. And if you wanted an encouragement in your prayer life, it's well worth a look at that. But he starts the book in this way. He shares about a time in their lives, in the Keller's life, he and his wife's life, when the pressures were huge. And it was around the time that he was diagnosed with cancer. And I think they had huge pressures in terms of looking after the church and family pressures as well. And in the midst of these difficulties, he writes about, he says this. At one point during all this, my wife urged me to do something with her we had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night, every night. She used an illustration that crystallized her feelings very well. As we remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it on some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. And he goes on to say, maybe it was the power of the illustration. Maybe it was just the right moment. Maybe it was the Spirit of God. Or most likely of all, it was the Spirit of God using the moment and the clarity of the metaphor. For both of us, the penny dropped. We realized the seriousness of the issue. And we admitted that anything that was a truly non-negotiable necessity was something we could do. That was more than 12 years ago, and Kathy and I can't remember missing a single evening of prayer together, at least by phone, even when we've been in different hemispheres. That's praying without ceasing. That's coming to the point in your life when you realize, I cannot do life without God. And committing to pray without ceasing. That image of a pill, I think, is really helpful. Medicine needed daily. I really enjoy um, John Calvin's illustration as well. He's a 16th century reformer. I've been reading his great long section on prayer, which is absolutely brilliant in the Christian Institutes. If you want to go digging around for that, 
it is fantastic. And as he introduces his section on prayer, he uses an illustration. He uses the picture of treasure. How do we access the treasure? He writes, it is therefore by the benefits of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. He goes on to say, we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel, which faith has gazed on. It's a beautiful picture of digging up treasure. How do we get to the treasure? We pray. That's how we get to the treasure. We pray. We want to experience the riches. You dig them up by prayer. What would it look like to pray without ceasing? I don't think it necessarily involves hours and hours and hours. When I was a youngster, it's a long story, but I ended up spending three or four nights in a Cistercian monastery. That is hardcore monastic living. Uh, I wasn't, by the way, ever planning on staying, but I thought a little trip there. They take praying ceasing without ceasing literally. Although they don't quite, but they have seven major prayer times per day. They get the first one is before dawn. The next one is just after dawn. They get one in mid-morning. They get one in at noon. They get one early afternoon. The next one is the early evening, and then there's the late evening. Seven major. Now, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. We don't see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, a monastic existence withdrawing from the world, but we do see him having times of prayer. We see Daniel, who was a top civil servant, prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and in the evening. It's speaking here about regular, keeping praying. Of course, there are going to be times when we just breathe out prayer as we go into situations. The prayer, the call here, I think is to be regular, to plan to pray, to ask God for help, maybe morning and evening. I just wonder whether one of the troubles in, one of the problems in our piety, our particular evangelical piety, we have the quiet times, but very often they get reduced just to being Bible reading times. And we just read through the scriptures, we give ourselves a program. Well, that's wonderful, but it's vital that they are prayer times as well. Times of speaking to God in response to his word, bringing our needs before him. And it may just be that what we need to do is to begin to develop prayer muscles. Develop our prayer muscles. Maybe you are starting from a very low base, learning to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Learning to read a psalm in the evening and just praying off the back of that. Just starting low. <laughs> but beginning 
to pray and to take time to turn to God. And to build that up, praying for yourself, the Lord's Prayer. Begin to pray for family. Begin to pray for um, the advance of the gospel. Bringing, praying for the people in your growth group. Just beginning to build in to that life. As you pray, and teach me to pray. T- learning to pray biblically. Learning to pray Paul's prayers. Taking some of those and praying them. Just begin to develop your praying muscles. Pray on your own. I think the Bible expects us to pray on our own. It expects to pray in church. And of course, if you have a family, to pray with your family. Maybe with your family. It's again going to be about starting low, but starting. Church is to be a house of prayer, not just a preaching house. That's why we're not going to give up the prayer slot in our Sunday services. We will never take out praying from what we do. We just cannot do that. We must pray when we gather. We must have times in the church life, and we often do it in growth groups, when we can pray for each other. We have prayer meetings when we can just come and intercede and bring our needs before the Lord's. Do you want... That help. And maybe for husbands and wives, you just need now just to learn to pray together. Again, start low, the Lord's Prayer. Some of you are great prayers, I know that. Setting aside time. I just want to speak, start to the younger folk here. Teenagers, those in their 20s, can I encourage you? Maybe the younger ones, the children amongst us, begin young to learn the habits and pattern of prayer. As you connect with God and see his strength in your life. And if you are an older one and you know you've neglected prayer, have a fresh start with God. So be honest, I haven't really prayed much at all or on my own. And just start tonight when you get in. Lord, I want to pray. I want to be a man or a woman of prayer. Forgive me and help me to pray. See, this is the will of God for you. And what God wills is good for us. It really is. He is telling us what is really, really, really good. Because God can only will good things and wonderful and glorious things. Because that is his nature. Thirdly, more quickly, give thanks in all circumstances. You know, gratitude is to be one of the key characteristics of the Christian. Romans 1, ingratitude, lack of thankfulness is just What comes from a person who has suppressed the truth about God and is indifferent to God? When we come to salvation, we recognize that God is glorious, merciful, and we have the gospel. It is just instinctive then we start to give thanks. But Paul again is saying, build this in to your life. Giving thanks, regularly giving thanks. I can think of a couple of the 
uh, finest uh, Christian men I've known in this church. They're both with the Lord now. And you'd ask them how they are, and they would just say something along the lines of grateful. Grateful. Despite their suffering, their difficulties and their loss, how are you doing? They're grateful. Grateful for what I've in Christ. Grateful for the way he's looked after me. What a great response that is. You came from two men. Just grow grateful. It's uh, been reading the book of Numbers in my own quiet times and praying, I'm hasting to add. But reading the book of Numbers, there the Israel are brought out of um, Egypt. And what do they do? They do nothing but grumble. They grumble about what they have not got. They have not got quite the right food. They haven't got quite the right responsibilities in leadership. And they grumble and they grumble rather than seeing what God has done for them in that wonderful rescue. There is no gratitude in them. We are called to be grateful. My friends, God's will for us is so clear in these verses. We're to ask for forgiveness where we've not been taking these verses seriously. But he does not come to us as a sergeant major. He comes to us as our loving savior and says, this is my will. These things are good for you for my glory, for the building up of the church. My dear friends, will you rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, knowing that this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and for your word. We thank you for the way that you reveal what you want for us. We know that these things are good and right and appropriate given the way that you have loved us in Christ and all that you've given us. We thank you that your word is tender because you know that in our sinful hearts we can slip into complaining, into being prayerless, into being disgruntled. And we thank you for this word which reminds us that whatever our circumstances, we are to rejoice in all we have in Christ. That we are to be faithful in prayer, knowing and rejoicing in the fact that we need you and that you are pleased to hear our prayers. And please fill our hearts with gratitude for all that we have. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's pray for our renewing and our refreshment, refreshing in the Lord Jesus.
God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.